between episode eight. Nine tricks to be a superstar podcast guest. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I have interviewed about a hundred entrepreneurs and experts in various subjects on the podcast at this juncture. So by no means am I even close to the Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule. I'm referring to the book Outliers, the often cited book by (laughs) Malcolm Gladwell, in which he says it takes roughly 10,000 hours of practice to achieve mastery in any given field. So I'm not even close. But while I am still working on my interviewing game, I'll tell you one thing that I probably have put in at least 10,000 hours doing, and that is listening to entrepreneurs and experts pitch their companies or their ideas. So I thought I would take this in-between-isode time to talk about the tricks or the skills that superstar podcast guests always seem to do really, really well. Because being interviewed in a long-form interview like a podcast is definitely different than most broadcast interviews. And it's also definitely different than giving a presentation or a keynote or a TED med. Many and most principles of good communication, of course, apply and they apply to any and all mediums. But there are nuances and hazards and foci that will, will certainly vary depending on what you're doing. Let's focus on the podcast format, and I have come up with nine tricks that I would offer to anyone who is invited to be a guest on a podcast. So let's kick this off. Nine tips to be a better podcast guest. Trick number one, prepare a little bit by figuring out ahead of time what listeners might want to learn from you. That means sift out three or four insights, learnings, questions, things that you think the audience would regard as valuable and worth remembering. I say this because people don't like to listen to ads. You know what they always say? People, they like to buy, but they don't like to be sold. The reason that they're listening to podcasts is not to be sold something, but it's to, generally speaking, learn something. So at most, you can give an infomercial for whatever it is that you're trying to promote or to let your product come up kind of naturally in the flow of the conversation and come up in the context of you delivering some sort of interesting information. So what are some examples of this? I'm thinking about Annette Dubard, who I interviewed, who had some really interesting points that she made about who the best patient populations are to target. And she said it's not necessarily the highest cost patients that are the best to go after, but the most impactable patients. Josh Benner from RxAnti also made a really interesting point about the best times to fix adherence or improve adherence are not after the patient is actually non-adherent. The most important moment in fixing adherence was actually before the patient starts taking the medication. 
He uses predictive analytics in order to do that. Eric Grossman from NextHealth told me something during our interview, which I must have repeated 20 times already. He was talking about how it's a pretty sad strategy to start with your capabilities. It's to say, we're pretty good at this. What should we do with it? And not a good strategy always starts with what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Salil Sadat had some very interesting things to say about artificial intelligence and using it for patient education. He's with Friendly. And Lisa Irwin talked about how PBMs are evolving and how that's going to affect the pharmaceutical industry. So all of these individuals had a product to sell or an idea that they were sharing. But I remember and I was very intrigued by the conversation because of the very valuable and relevant and meaningful information that they delivered first. So how do you figure out what these valuable insights might be. What I would think about is when you're talking to people or you're pitching in your real life, your day-to-day life, what do people seem intrigued by and ask you follow-up questions about when you mention it? And I would get these points really clear because these really are your hooks and they really are the reasons why people will, number one, listen to the interview to the end, but then number two, call or email you later. And by figuring out what your points are also ahead of time, what they're going to give you are the organizing themes, which subconsciously or consciously you kind of will be able to weave together in your answers and responses and talking points. So that'll prevent you from kind of getting to the end of the interview and realizing that you forgot to mention something. Trick number two, tell stories. I would not get into a feature list. I would not string together a whole bunch of random facts. I would tell a story in order to articulate those same things. If you don't have or can't use an actual customer, then tell a story about a typical composite customer, a typical composite situation. Here's an example. We'll go about this two different ways. If I were a guest on a podcast and I said this, you tell me how interested you'd be. Our product has EHR integration. And we deploy high-tech, hi-fi transcription, and our workflow is frictionless. You know, actually what we do is our product is a dynamic quality solution and we deliver high value in the marketplace. Are you still with me? Hopefully you haven't turned the podcast off because that was actually just an example. (laughs) Let's say that exact same thing, but in the form of a story. All right, you ready? Once again, I'm playing the role of podcast guest. Hey, interviewer, we already talked about the reasons why physician eye contact is so important. And you'd asked me before how it relates to patient satisfaction and how minimizing administrative documentation requirements is really also key to physician satisfaction. So let me answer your question about how our software works. Picture this. The doctor walks into the exam room. Instead of walking directly over to the computer monitor and not making eye contact or engaging with the patient, with our software, the physician can speak aloud in a normal voice, and our software will actually transcribe the words directly into the EHR system and right into the soap note in the right place. But you listen to that. I basically said exactly the same thing that I did with that list of facts earlier, except I said it in the form of a story. And here's the other really important advantage of telling stories, because as the interviewer, if you would have said that, told that story about the transcription, wow, I hope that 
exists at some point. (laughs) But if I were the interviewer and someone said that to me, it's a really easy follow-on question. I'd ask you how your system knows where to put the transcript and how it's QC'd and where the billing codes come from. Eventually, as a guest, you will manage to get your entire feature list in, but it will be so much more palatable because it will come as the answer to a question as opposed to some sort of hanging factoid. If you think about this from the interviewer's perspective or from the standpoint of a conversation, if you kind of rattle off a feature list as the interviewer, what am I supposed to ask you? Oh, thank you so much. You've given us five features. Is there a sixth one, perhaps, that you'd like to talk about? (laughs) Or obviously, maybe I could go in and ask you questions about the individual features. But now think about that from the form of a conversation. It's just it even sounds sort of boring when I explain it. You gave me a bullet list. I'm going to ask questions about the bullets. That's my tip, too. And I can tell you as an interviewer, I will love you for it. Tell some stories. Trick number three, state the problem first or explain the why might be a different way to say the same thing. So state the trouble that you saw in the marketplace that inspired your company or your idea or your way of thinking. What was the gaping need that you were aiming to fill? What did it look like before? And once again, I would tell this like a story. And maybe the story is, here's the typical experience. Doctor walked into an exam room, dot, dot, dot. Or a business leader is attempting to fix their quality metrics, dot, dot, dot. And then explain what their harrowing experience was with that. I would not intersperse the problem, the before, with bits of the after and the solution. What you want to do is give all three parts of the problem not one part of the problem and then a couple bits of the solution within one answer. So think about this. Interviewer asks a question. Maybe the question is, what was the problem that you saw? What I highly would recommend that you do is just talk about the problem within the space of that answer. The interviewer will likely say, all right, well, what did you do about it? And then within that answer, you talk all about the solution. What a bad thing to do is interviewer asks you about the problem. And like I said, you kind of toggle between bits and pieces of the problem and bits and pieces of the solution. It just gets very messy. And it's also difficult for the interviewer to figure out, are there more parts of the problem? So, you know, should the next question be, what else? (laughs) Or have we handled it? Or it makes it much more challenging and messy conversation than if you handle the problem, like I said, all in one shot. And then when you get into the solution, you can explore the solution in full as it addresses the total scope of the problem, which has been previously articulated. One way that you can think about this is there's a guy named Ian Altman who wrote a book called Same Side Selling. It's a very short book. I totally would recommend it. One of the big points that Ian Altman makes in the book is he did a survey of CEOs and the questions that CEOs ask when the people who report to them come to the CEO and ask the CEO for budget to do something. What Ian found was that there's three questions that the CEO will typically ask in that moment. The first question is, what is the problem that needs to be solved? 
I'm the CEO. You came to me and you said, hey, I need you to buck up 100 grand to buy this. First question I'm going to ask is, what's the problem? What problem do we have here that warrants a $100,000 spend? Is the problem big enough for us to be thinking about? Secondly, how well will this proposal or solution solve that problem? And then thirdly is, why is this company the best company to do it? You'll notice nowhere in there was, how does this thing work? (laughs) Or what RAID server are they using? Or, you know, kind of nuances. My point here is that what actually is the most important thing in many respects is what the problem is and getting that problem articulated. It's what people really care about first. The worst thing in the world is to be a solution looking around for a problem, right? Trick number four. If you take the time to tell a backstory, make sure the backstory is interesting, meaningful, immediately relevant, and not common. What I'm talking about here is either a corporate backstory or a personal history. It might seem like a really great way to set up the why or set up the problem that your company or yourself are aiming to solve. And in some ways it is, but there's one caution that I would lay out there. Take a guess what the backstory is for the preponderance of health tech entrepreneurs, at least the ones that I've heard. Go ahead, take a guess. This is what I would say the composite backstory is. I used to be in finance, and I saw what happened there when the finance industry became consumerized. So I'm taking my learnings over to healthcare. Here's another backstory that I often hear a lot. I had a relative who had a bad time in the healthcare system. I name both of these backstories because I'm just going to come right out and say I think more people have them than do not at least the ones that I have heard. And listening to the number of pitches that I listen to and listening to the number of podcast guests that I listen to, if I had to guess what someone's backstory would be, it would be one of those two things. So if these backstories are yours, then my advice would be to really forget about the financial services resume aspect unless something very specific that you did there is analogous to what you're trying to do in healthcare. Otherwise, it just sounds like someone trying to justify their career path with a more noble calling. Here's an example. One of our guests recently talked about his experience with banks using ATMs as a competitive advantage and then used that as a proxy or analogous to the future of telemedicine and for hospitals that deploy telemedicine. I mean, that's perfect. And it doesn't sound like you're trying to justify a career gap when the financial industry tanked in 2008 and you had to figure out some other industry to go into. Trick number five. Test your sound quality in advance. This is a little bit tactical, but nothing turns off podcast listeners off faster than crappy sound. I record Relentless Health Value podcast and many of the other podcasts do the same. We do not record them over the telephone. I record using Skype and I do that because if you record using Skype, then I get a digital sound. If I called someone on the telephone, then it kind of sounds like the guest is on the telephone. (laughs) I try to avoid that. But even over Skype or using digital sound, that puts a certain onus on the guest to calibrate their sound ahead of time. A couple of pointers. Number one, you need to be in a quiet place. 
This kind of seems self-evident, but sometimes people forget and they will take the interview in the airport or while driving in the car or (laughs) other places which are not necessarily known for their pristine tranquility. One thing I would also watch is if you are, for example, working in a startup in a cool loft, there's going to be echo. If you've got wooden floors and high ceilings, the sound is going to echo and you'll really hear that when it's high def. The best sound quality is actually in a small room. You know, they say one of the best places for the best sound is is sitting in a closet <laughs> because it's small and extraneous noises are absorbed by your clothes, actually. Anyway, everyone's talking about coming out of the closet. This could be a good excuse to be in there. <laughs> The other thing with Skype that many people don't realize is that there's a Skype test call in everybody's contact lists, which if you do get asked to be on a podcast, I would highly recommend that you use. What happens with the Skype test call is you will get recorded. You know, the the Skype lady will record you for 30 seconds and then play back how you sound. This is really important because maybe you have a microphone or earbuds or something that you tend to use on conference calls. This is different. A lot of the hiccups or scratchiness or static in the background, you can get away with on a conference call because nobody really cares. But in a high-def sound environment where the expectation is silence in the background, it's very, very noticeable. So what I definitely would do in advance is call that Skype test call number with whatever setup that you intend to use and make sure that it's good. And if you do this ahead of time, you will have the opportunity. Maybe you need to get a new set of earbuds or microphone or figure out a different place to sit, but you'll know that ahead of time as opposed to trying to figure this out while the interviewer is waiting to begin the interview. Things to watch out for are air vents, actually, also. If you're sitting underneath the air conditioning (laughs) vent or by a heating vent, it's weird as an interviewer. I can hear the air go by. (laughs) So be careful for that also. Another thing to pay attention to is the caliber of your Wi-Fi. If you do have the opportunity to plug in for the interview, like you've got an old Ethernet cable someplace and an Ethernet jack, If you're going to do it at any time, that might be a good time because a poor Wi-Fi connection can also denigrate the sound quality. One last thing to keep in mind is I will often say during interviews, I can hear your clothes. And what I mean by that is if you're using your earbuds, it's actually not a bad way to go. You just take the earbuds that came with your iPhone, you plug it into your iPhone, you download the Skype app onto your iPhone or your Android or whatever and do the interview that way. But you have to really watch the microphone of your earbuds isn't scratching your shirt. So every time you move around, the microphone rubs your shirt. That is a very loud noise, almost impossible to edit out. It's really difficult to edit noises that are happening when you're talking on your track. Because generally speaking, I mean, at least I do, uh, the, the podcast is recorded on two tracks. So if you make noise when I'm talking, then that's absolutely fine. It's easy to edit. But if you're talking and making noise at the same time, it is what it is. Trick number six. And this might be an offshoot of tip number one. But tip six is give actionable advice. 
And lists are good for this. Here's three things I always consider when diagnosing a situation like this, or here's what I would say the most overlooked elements are. One, two, three. Number one, it's easy to see the value as a listener of a list. It's easy to remember. It's also an easy way to organize your thoughts, but also it's a really good way to sort of check yourself and to make sure that it's not going to sound like a commercial. Trick number seven, make it a conversation a dialogue as opposed to a monologue. And this is really important for a couple of different reasons. One of them is, and this has been proven by science, the more often speakers switch, one person's talking and then another person begins to speak, the more often speakers switch, the higher the baseline interest level. Here's an example. I always wondered why I have a shorter attention span for audiobooks but I could listen to interview-style podcasts all day. This is why, because the speakers are switching back and forth, and that just raises the interest quotient kind of automatically. If you get a good conversation going amongst intelligent people with different points of view, there's something about that which is very appealing just inherently. And a guest can really contribute to that back and forth. The interview asks a question and, and the guest rambles on for 15 minutes. That is an interview which really doesn't take advantage of the built-in <laughs> advantages that interview podcasts have, which is the ability to, as I said, switch back and forth to speakers. So I'm not saying that the answers to questions should be crazy short. This isn't a broadcast show where you're going to get cut off after a minute. And sometimes if it sounds like you're kind of yesing and knowing, that's an equally daunting problem. But I also would be very careful to uh, – what's that um, Lewis Carroll from Alice in Wonderland quote that the king said? Start at the beginning, and when you come to the end, stop. <laughs> I'd be careful to do that when you're talking in a podcast. Give a full answer, but when you're done, stop so that the interviewer can ask you a second question. I would, oh, this is the worst. Please don't launch into your TED Talk or read from a prepared statement. It does not matter how clever you think you are at not sounding like you're reading something, you'll sound like you're reading something. And the cadence that you use, and I, I mentioned TED Talks just because if you listen to someone who is giving their TED Talk completely outside in another environment, it sounds like a TED Talk. It's just not super appropriate for this kind of format. Also, what's entailed there is pausing after each thought because you want to make sure that the interviewer can engage with you and ask you questions and kind of direct the interview. When you say something, make a second or two pause after each thought, and that in would enable the interviewer to jump in if they want to steer the conversation. Another trick is leave a cliffhanger. Instead of telling the whole story, end with something that lends itself to a natural next question. Maybe you'd want to end with, and then how we interact with out-of-network providers is a whole different process. Because as an interview, that's kind of a softball. I, I would, of course, say, oh, 
And how exactly do you interact with out-of-network providers then? But just by enabling that exchange, you've given the conversation momentum. If you tell the whole story, then the conversation kind of stops and, and you're really putting the onus on the interviewer to figure out how to pick up the ball again and move the conversation forward. Or you could answer a question like this. No, I don't think that would really work. In fact, I can probably come up with three reasons why it wouldn't work. Not only does an answer like that buy you time because you can start thinking about the three reasons or the multiple reasons why it wouldn't work, it allow the interviewer to interject and to ask the question, oh, what are those three reasons? <laughs> Trick number eight. If there's a question that you definitely want to get asked or information that you definitely want to share or a point you want to cover, tell the interviewer in advance. I love to play Jeopardy. If a guest says to me in advance, look, here's a thing that I really, really want to talk about, I will listen to what they said and I will come up with a question so that the guest can articulate the point that they would like to make. The worst, the very end, we finish the interviewer and then someone says, oh, I would have really liked to talk about this other thing. Or the point that I was trying to make was X kind of goes back to maybe everything goes back to tip number one, which is prepare your points in advance. But if you figure out what those points are, then definitely let the interviewer know. And it's my job to make sure that you get to talk about the things which are most relevant and most meaningful. So I will make sure that somehow or another that that gets woven into the conversation. Trick number nine. If the show is edited, you can feel free to pause before answering a question. Just stop and think about it. That awkward silence will get cut. If you need to think about something, to just kind of think about it in advance and then give a natural sounding answer. Sometimes guests are so worried about dyslinguals and dyslinguals are, um, you know, kinda, or the new ones, which are pervasive the new ones are sorta, sort of, it's sort of, it was sort of this. And so, every sentence beginning with so. It's probably better to take a pause at the beginning, assuming the show is edited, which most, well, at least you could ask the question. Relentless Health Values is definitely edited. But if you pause at the beginning, then your answer can sort of sound I did it. I said sort of. Did you hear that? Then your answer will sound natural. What does not sound natural is if you are trying so hard not to say um or you know that you make long pauses between words. So talking like this, I think that, because the problem with that is even if we have an editor go through and erase the pauses in between the words, it will still sound weird. It'll sound like this. I think that it, <laughs> it just sounds very awkward. Another thing that is not recommended is it's fine if you have a dyslingual. You say something like, I, you know, thought this because if the show once again is edited, someone can go in and cut out the, you know, that was in there or like I just did, I repeated the same word. I said the, the, it's easy to cut out the, those second words. However, if you run the dyslingual into the word you're trying to say, so you say something like, 
Yinoa was this. It's impossible to cut the, you know, from the it. Or you do something like, uh, and then I said, <laughs> those kinds of dislinguals are a producer's worst nightmare. So I only point that out because in a podcast for format, using these dislinguals, I wouldn't worry about it. It's not like you're giving a keynote speech where if you say too many ums or you knows, it's incredibly evident. I feel like in the podcast format, it's a little bit less of a problem, but we still edit out the worst of it. But if you do either one of the two things that I just mentioned, in other words, really long pauses between words, or if you run your dislingual into your sentence, it is what it is. It's almost impossible to get rid of. So these have been my nine tricks to being a superstar podcast guest. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. We will be back next week with our normal interview format. We have a great guest lined up. See you next week. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.